right, hello everyone. This is Dr. Joel Rosen. I call myself the Adrenal Fatigue Recovery Ninja. And today I'm here with my special guest, uh, Dr. Chris Masterjohn. Uh, Dr. Masterjohn earned his PhD in Nutritional Sciences from the University of Connecticut in the summer of 2002. And he's also been a assistant professor for um, the health and nutritional sciences at Brooklyn College, part of the City University of New York. Uh, but now he's doing his, his own thing, so to speak, and um, he does private consultations and he, does, he practices what he preaches. He combines his scientific expertise and out of, out of the box thinking to you know, translate into complex science and practical ideas to, to get your health back. So Chris, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate you spending time with me. Thank you, Dr. Rosen, it's good to be here. Yeah, so, so I always like to ask my guest, Chris, a little bit about how they got onto their path in, in terms of for you in, in micronutrients and biochemistry and so forth. Tell us just a little bit about you. Yeah, my, my path starts back with uh, me as a teenager and watching what my mom was going through and she was suffering from fibromyalgia. She was uh, in pain all the time. There were a lot of nights that I didn't sleep when I was a teenager just because she was moaning in pain all night. And um, I watched her go through her own healing journey with uh, her entry into alternative medicine and to uh, a focus on nutrition and a focus on diet and lifestyle and exercise, yoga, herbs, etc. And I don't know all the pieces of the puzzle that put together to make her better, but I do know that what I saw was when she took control of her own health, uh, things got a lot better and, and it's, it's completely different for her now. And that was my interest, but it, it didn't really become a professional interest until I had my own journey like that. So, you know, being very interested in nutrition, but not actually knowing a lot, I went down my own paths that led me in places that didn't do so much good for me. And in particular, I, I went vegan and, um, you know, back before it was as popular as it is today. And uh, me and veganism are not a good match. So I think there's just uh, certain nutrients that I, my body just doesn't pull well from plant foods. And I had a big, severe degeneration of my mental and physical health. My teeth fell apart, my brain fell apart. And um, I stumbled across the work of Weston Price who had been a nutrition, he, he was a dental researcher turned pioneer of nutritional anthropology. And he studied the way in which uh, traditional diets all around the world supported vibrant health and the way that the, the transition to modern refined foods just across the globe uh, led to not only tooth decay and dental deformities, but physical degeneration of all types. And one of the things that I was surprised to learn from his work was that the foods that were valued in the traditional diets that were health promoting were, uh, were especially foods of animal origin. And not only foods that I just wasn't eating at all when I was a vegan, but foods that even most of my omnivorous friends and family were not eating. Organ meats, shellfish, you know, shellfish, they get their play in the American diet. Organ meats really don't anymore at all. Um, bones, and so it really was a whole new world for me. And I watched my mental and physical health completely transform when I made that transition. That made me want to pay what I had learned forward. I initially thought that I would go to medical school, but uh, I had a history degree. I was finishing up my bachelor's in history when this happened. So I had no science background. And when I graduated, in order to get into medical school, I needed to take a lot of undergraduate science classes as prereqs. And as I was taking those classes, I, I really kind of fell in love with the microscopic world of biochemistry and molecular biology. And through my own, through, through my own um, recognition of what I really loved, but also through the advice of my professors and colleagues, I decided to go into research and get my PhD in nutritional sciences uh, in, partly be, in part because I, I, I loved all the little teeny tiny things more than, than um, all the things in front of me like other people, but, but, but also because um, my skill set is really much more about um, 
creativity and solving novel problems than it is about uh, applying problems in a real life situation working with people. And so, I, you know, I think we all have to do a little bit of both. But in terms of where my home really is, the home for my brain is in really tinkering with all, the way all the things work at those little details and then trying to figure out what are new, what are new practical things people can do to improve their health that come out of understanding all the little tiny details. Yeah, that's a great story, Chris. Thanks for sharing. Similar to mine in the sense that I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I went back to get a psychology degree and I almost just went into psychology. I was like, this is, I find this fascinating, just overwhelmingly interesting. And then I, as I got into holistic healthcare and um, into chiropractic, I ended up seeing um, uh, exhaustion, burnout, fatigue, um, over you know $250,000 worth of student debt. My wife was pregnant with twins. I was moving to a new country, let alone a new state. And I had just injured my back again. And uh, I, I was overwhelmed with fatigue. And then I found out about this, this thing called uh, adrenal fatigue that with two undergraduates and a, and, a, and a doctor that I'd never even heard of. And like, what, what the heck is this? So that led me to my path. Um, but what I, what I really valued is the psychology component of it because I didn't realize how much I would be um, using that in my day-to-day -day interaction. So um, similar stories in that regards. And then you find a, a path where it, it allows you to be in your comfort zone, which it sounds like you're there. So now what do you do with your, you, you mentioned about um, micronutrients and you, you mentioned that for your particular uh, body, you don't pull nutrients effectively in a vegan-based diet. How is that translated to how you work up with your clientele and, and what you do? Um, well, I, you know, I, uh, uh, right now the, the overwhelming proportion of what I do is I immerse myself in research and I produce content about it. So, um, my, you know, my, my day-to-day -day life right now is, um, is each week I am, uh, intensively studying a nutrient and I have, a. Uh, a colleague who's working with me on this part-time who's studying some supplementation and then um and then we're producing an incredibly dense two and a half hour podcast at the end of the week on that nutrient and then i'm coming back out of that research to revise a product that i produced at the end of the right at the turn of um last winter so last january uh, a, a little over a year ago, I produced this item, the testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet, which is basically a, it's called a cheat sheet because it's designed so that you, you know, you could just engage with it for, the, for five minutes and know what you need to do. And then it kind of walks you step by step through it. It's actually 78 pages long. And it's basically a system for how do you manage your nutritional status for vitamins and minerals and essential fatty acids? So I'm going back to that to, you know, out of, out of each, uh, each set of research into a nutrient, I'm going back to that to update and revamp it. And um, that's my, that's my big, 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 big project. So I do uh, a couple of days a week, I do some consulting and there I work with all kinds of people in my consulting um, you know, like some of them, the, the things that people want from me are so diverse that I don't really have a typical clientele. Um, but what I really am trying to do is, uh, you know, soak up information about what, what people need, what do I have in my skill set that's of value, and then pour that into the content that I'm producing. And, and then the research that you, that you get into as well, like uh, use the, um, the demands or the suggestions or the needs of the people that come approach you. And then does that how you decide on which nutrient you pick or how you put the puzzle pieces together? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, there are, it, 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 might, it might feed into specific qu questions that I prioritize about those nutrients, but we're, we're doing right now to be organized and systematic about it is just going down the list one by one. So we just did a, a podcast on riboflavin, which is vitamin B2. 
and now we're working intensively on niacin, which is vitamin B3. Um, right. We would do vitamin B4 next week, but unfortunately there is none. So we have to skip the vitamin uh, B5. I was like, I don't remember B4. So <laughs> as far as, um, uh, so this is the question I have for you because I find this uh, in, my, in my challenges of making cheat sheets, so to speak, is there are so many domino effects, right? In terms of if this, then that. It's almost like those old storybooks where you can choose your own ending, right? Like you, you know, do I go to the graveyard or should I go to the attic? You know, if you go to the attic, it's, you know, but how, how do you... How have you found it to be able to provide value as a cheat sheet for your end user, but be cognizant of it's not a reductionistic model? I know that's a tough question to answer. Well, I found myself uh, with the same struggle as I was producing it because when what I had someone who was asking me to produce it and the way that they asked was they wanted a one page PDF and my cheat sheet is 78 pages, and it actually is a choose your own adventure story. Because one of the things that I realized is that as I'm going through this, I, I, I know what the mind, in the mind of the people who asked me to produce this, what they wanted was for each nutrient, what is the test that I should get? What is the range of that test? What do I conclude about it? And you could put that on a one-page PDF. The problem is that uh, you can't assess nutritional status adequately that way because you need to understand the diet and lifestyle and you need to understand the signs and symptoms and those all need to be equally important inputs into your considerations about what the right nutrient is. And if you're using, the, if you're using a blood test in a cookie cutter approach without really understanding the other legs of evidence, then you're actually going to make a lot of mistakes because, you know, so many of these normal ranges in the lab tests are, you know, if they're called a normal range, you're already in trouble because that means what they did was they took an apparently healthy population and they assessed the mean and the standard deviation. And they said, okay, the mean plus and minus two standard deviations is 97.5% of the people. And so those must be the healthy ones. Everything outside that is abnormal. And it's like, that's, that's, um, that's good to have versus nothing because then you can get someone who's wildly out of normal and that gives you a big clue into what might be wrong in that person. But that's not, um, that's not like, that's not optimized for assessing the status of the person. You know, what's optimized in some, in many cases for nutrients, we do have very good tests that were tested out in the field either out in the field where in populations where, where micronutrient deficiencies were very common or in an experimental context, like lock a bunch of college students in a dorm and feed them a zinc deficient diet and watch their plasma zinc fall. And then uh, look at the point that the plasma zinc fell to when they start, first started developing symptoms, then feed them some zinc and see what the plasma zinc is when the symptoms first go away and things like that. So we do have some things like that, but even there, you're still de dealing with averages, right? So the, you know, the average uh, person has a plasma zinc of 70 when they first get patches of dry skin. But if the average person does, there's some variation around that, right? So you can have someone in the normal, so even if you get the best numbers to make the normal range, there's still people in the normal range, maybe significantly in the normal range, who are deficient. And then there's people who are below the normal range who, yeah, probably if they're below the normal range or the optimal range, probably they need a little bit more, but that might not be at all their most important problem. And um, so what you, you know, what you really wanna be able to say is, well, do your signs and symptoms match up with not having enough zinc? When we look at your diet, are you eating sources of zinc? Are you not eating sources of zinc? And all those things feed into what the most, um, what the most reasonable conclusion is. And so the way that I designed it was basically to say, okay, how do I love, and I think you could do this approach for anything, right? Like any kind of system you want to make for managing anything, you kind of extract out, how do I take out the, um, how do I take out highly actionable steps 
to make decisions about what are the highest probability places that it's going to pay off to start looking at something. And how do I collect as much information that can go into that as possible with the least amount of effort? Then when you get those things, um, where do I go to as, as the highest probability area? Go there. What do I do as the highest probability thing to work? How do I monitor that it worked? And, and you just go through that process, right? So in, in this particular case, I designed it so that um, so that someone would be able to only go through the first five pages and then that might tell them to read one of the other pages, but they don't have to go through the whole thing. So I think if you're taking that to like any system, you, um, that's what you do. You, you filter out based on probability, you have ways to monitor success. And if you find that whatever you thought was a problem isn't working, you go back to the drawing board and you repeat for the next probable thing. Super cool. I mean, it's it's like a paradigm shift because there's so many things that you touch upon. Like number one, like why does I mean I have a thousand and one questions out of that, but number one is why is the traditional medical model not putting it on a one standard deviation? You know, I mean we could probably have a, a whole a whole hour around that because I've often wondered, you know, why that is. There's probably politics and other, you know, um, other things. I, I always tell my. I, I, can, I think I, I think I can answer that fairly straightforwardly. So, I mean, if you're if you're doing that, you really don't know what the basis is to do anything, and you have to pick something. And actually, a lot of the RDAs, which are, which is the the recommended uh, a dietary allowance, how much of a nutrient should you have for for one day's worth. A lot of those are built on the assumption that people vary in their needs, but there's no data on the variation in the needs. So they say, oh, we assume that a standard deviation is 10%. And so they use two standard deviations, but they don't even know what the actual standard deviation is. They made it up. Um, but, the, but the logic of using two standard deviations is that you, I mean, really it's an outgrowth of statistics where in statistics, and this is, this is really a relic of the old days in statistics before they had computers where they had to use tables um, at, like to, to determine p-values. So a p-value in statistics is it's saying, what is the probability that I would have seen this had there had like seen this difference between two groups if it was just random chance. And because they had to go and look in probability tables instead of doing a, com compu a computer telling them the exact number, they had to make a cutoff to make it not be super tedious. And so it became the norm in statistics for them to say, okay, if the, if the probability that I would observe this thing, if it were just random chance is less than 5%, I'm going to call that a real result. And so as an outgrowth of that, we kind of said like, Okay, if, um, if we use the same metric to say like, if you are not within the 95% of people in the middle of this population, you're probably not in that population. And right. so if we take this population that as far as we can tell, no one has disease and everyone's healthy, then we say, well, we're confident that you're in that population if you're in the 95% in the middle. And if you're not in that 95%, we're not confident that you're in that population. So it makes sense that you would use two standard deviations rather than one, because one standard deviation is right in the middle of that population, right? And so it's, um, uh, it's, it's a better critique of that model would be like, why aren't we using a better metric of what the population is? Like, why is the definition apparently healthy people rather than actually studying like the, the, the difference between the disease process? But that's kind of, that itself is, um, it, that's just a relic of, of, you, of the, the uh, needing to get numbers faster than you have good data behind them, right? So like doctors had to do something. And um, because, because you can identify the wild outliers, even if you don't know where the margins are. And so you start by being able to do that. I think the, the, the real problem is not so much starting that way. It's 
viewing that as a destination, right? We want to be on a progress of better understanding the disease processes and being able to eventually define better populations. Yeah, I mean, that's why I started off as a paradigm shift in so many ways, because it, it allows not just the patient, but also the, sometimes the dogmatic practitioner to conclude that there's nothing wrong when it's based on a faulty standardization in the first place, right? I mean, and that, that leads to problems, which is what's also nice about your cheat sheet is that it raises questions to the doctor and to the patient alike that, okay, there's not a definite this or that, um, and, and you could be um, in, a, in a problem area when you don't have enough, and you can be in an okay area when you, when you have too much, and that's where you have to raise the antenna of, okay, these are the signs and symptoms if you did have that problem, and that's what you're talking about with your cheat, cheat sheet. Um, if this, then consider that but these things have to be there as well. So it gets more into the old way of, of, like, of investigation, right? In terms of yeah. putting, putting reasonable uh, theories together and giving the, empowering the patient, right? Because the patient wants to be empowered and they want to, to understand what they can do about this to be able to, to get their life back, basically. Yeah. So super cool what you're doing. As far as um, some of the things that I work with, Chris, are patients, like I told you earlier, that identify them as a controversial term in terms of an adrenal fatigue problem. Um, but then a lot of researchers say that there's no such thing. It's more of a yeah. HPA axis dysfunction. And I don't even think it's an, an HPA axis dysfunction doesn't give it enough credence in terms of how deep and profound it is at, at the mitochondrial level where I've come to the understanding that their circadian rhythm, um, which regulates all of the biochemistry, is not, is not ultimately functioning optimally, and that impacts the priority systems in the body so that you, you do the higher priority things at the less priority, and, you, and your body compensates the way it knows how, and, and then you see patterns and trends. So I guess the question would be to you is, what patterns and trends from a micronutrient point of view do you see with the exhausted, burnt out, um, not handling stress, um, uh, inappropriate responses, anxieties, not sleeping, circadian rhythm disruptions? From I know it's a broad question, from a micronutrient consistent um, take takeaway, um, if you yeah. can even answer. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I think the burnout fatigue thing is it's from a micronutrient perspective, it's problematic because fatigue is one of the most nonspecific signs that you could have. So um, to begin with, you're definitely gonna be fatigued if any aspect of your energy metabolism is wonked. And so certainly that includes the seven B vitamins that are involved in energy metabolism. Iron is pretty famously involved in energy metabolism because so many people are anemic. And if you can't deliver oxygen to your, to your muscles and to your brain and to all the energy, well, all your tissues, right? Because they're all based, everything in your body is based on using energy. Um, then, yeah, you're going to be fatigued. But, uh, you know, so almost everyone knows that iron deficiency can cause anemia, but so can folate and B12 deficiency, which are two of the B vitamins that aren't the seven that I was just talking about. So that's nine B vitamins now. Um, and even uh, even uh, nutrients that you wouldn't ex like there's a quite a number of nutrients that are rare causes of anemia so like B B6 deficiency can cause anemia sometimes it's not very common vitamin C can it's not very common uh, copper definitely can um, then but then even like even in energy metabolism itself iron copper and sulfur are all very 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 important um, so you're I mean you you're even at the first layer of onion of the onion as you peel apart the complexity you're seeing two-thirds of the nutrients right there so i don't think that um feeling fatigued or being burnt out is a very good sign it's a good sign that something's wrong but it's not a good sign of what it is and i think you want to try to look at what are some of the things that stand out that that are unique to some of the nutrients. So you mentioned circadian rhythm. I think that if someone 
if someone is resistant to being able to entrain their circadian rhythm with light, then that's a telltale sign that they're probably missing vitamin A. I would give it a 95% probability vitamin A and a 5% probability with zinc. Although actually I would give it a 50% probability that they're doing it wrong. But if, because I think that, you know, I think so with circadian rhythm, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that if you don't have a working circadian rhythm, you need to be extremely OCD about how rigorous you are with your light exposure patterns. So for me, I, right now I have a very well entrained circadian rhythm and I can bend my rules a lot and my body still makes me get tired at the same time, still makes me get up at the same time. If, if you couldn't bend the rules and allow that to happen, it wouldn't be a rhythm, right? Like the, one of the, one of the, um, one of the pieces of evidence where we first discovered circadian rhythms was observing that you could put rats or maybe it was mice, I don't know, lab, laboratory rodents, you could completely divorce them from their light dark patterns. And for a certain amount of time, like a certain number of days, they would still fall asleep at the same time, still wake up at the same time, still eat at the same time. And so it was like, we realized that the, the body was running on this rhythm. But if you are not running on that rhythm, it can take, I think, months or more of being extremely rigorous of getting sunshine in the morning at X time and not varying it, getting two to four hours of low blue light exposure, you know, mercile mercilessly controlled um, every night before you go to bed, starting at the same time. So if those things don't work, then I think vitamin A deficiency could be a big problem because your, uh, the input of light into your eye to, for your brain to know that that means it's daytime, that blue light signal is transmitted by vitamin A. And so if vitamin A is not there, then that transmission doesn't work. But, you know, vitamin, vitamin A deficiency also tends to cause trouble seeing at night. It also tends to cause bumps on the skin. It also tends to cause uh, dry eyes. So, you know, as other signs pile up, then it's like even more likely, even more likely, even more likely, even more likely. You don't need all the signs there. So if you can measure someone's serum vitamin A levels and see whether it's in the middle or not, then, you know, like the more it is towards the lower range, then the more probable it is. So you just take those pieces of information. You say, how probable is that? And if the person is, um, you know, but here's the problem with why you wouldn't just do dietary analysis though. So uh, I'll, a huge portion of the population can get vitamin A from red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables. And that's because red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables have carotenoids, such as beta carotene, that can be converted into retinol, which is a form of vitamin A that we need inside of our eyes. But about half the population on genetics alone is two times less effective as the other half at making that conversion. A quarter of the population on genetics alone is four times less effective than the good half of the population. On top of that, there's a bunch of health factors like deficiencies of other nutrients, like uh, hypothyroidism, like digestive problems, like the list just goes on and on and on and on that worsen that conversion. So even if your genetics are good, you can have a bunch of problems that impair um, and if your genetics are bad and you have those problems and you might have no ability to get vitamin A from plant foods, then all of a sudden the only places you can get vitamin A from are liver, cod liver oil, and to a lesser extent, eggs and dairy. But even eggs and dairy are not going to give you even the RDA of vitamin A, the way most people eat them. So it's really like, do you have liver once a week? Do you have cod liver oil every day? And so the dietary analysis is kind of complex because you don't know whether that person's making that conversion. You also don't know, is that person absorbing those nutrients? Also, the RDA, remember, is based on the idea that people's needs vary. What if that person has a higher need for that nutrient? Um, so it's, it's really like making, making sense like that. Then the seven B vitamins. The B vitamins are interesting because they are so overlapping in function that their signs and symptoms are very overlapping. So you tend to see a focus on problems with the skin, hair, and nails, as well as problems with energy, as well as problems neurologically. But they all have little tiny differences that can be telltale signs. And you're not going to see this if the person is mildly, mildly deficient. But if the person is like 
50% or more into that level of deficiency. You're going to see things like in riboflavin deficiency, the skin problems will start around the edges of the nose and at the corners of the mouth, something like that. Whereas in biotin deficiency, the most common places where you get skin problems is in the perineum, which is between the genitals and the anus. Whereas with niacin deficiency, the most likely form of skin problems that you have only manifest when you're exposed to the sun because the problems are actually based on DNA damage that the sun does that you can't repair. So there's all these little telltale signs where um, if you really know what you're doing, you can start to, to go down the list of which thing is most probable that can point you in the right direction. Yeah, super cool. Makes my mind spin a bit with now thinking of the hypothesis that people that, that have those double mutations just from a genetic standpoint are more susceptible to circadian rhythm breakdowns, right? Because of the vitamin A issues. Yeah. Um, but well, there's all, though on top of that, there are also genetic polymorphisms in the protein in the eye that uses the vitamin A to transmit the blue light signal. So it's not just about your status, but some people are much more sensitive to the effective light than others because of those polymorphisms. Yeah. And speaking of those, because those are always coming down the pike, right? I mean, you get these RSID numbers that we didn't know about a year ago. And all of a sudden we find out that this gene regulates the making of that enzyme. And it's not just that enzyme anymore. I mean, case in point with, you know, with the nerf two and, uh, and some, of, some of those things, as far as, um, for iron, this is a question I really wanted to ask you because yeah. maybe this rings true personally, um, but as well in terms of is the traditional model or the allopathic model or even the RDA um, or even just the two standard deviation of, of understanding um, iron ideal or iron lab ranges and ferritin ranges. Where are we missed? Because you mentioned about iron deficiency anemias, but we also have iron overload with enriched uh, nutrients as well. So w- what's the mess there? I guess if there's a question out of that, Chris, in terms of what, how do we optimize iron with not being too low and too high and where should we be on those in terms of stored and, and usage? Yeah. So I think, you know, the most people, and this is not a, this is not a license that I care about iron, but most people um, have, a, have a, a, like the way our system is supposed to work, it doesn't matter that much what your dietary iron is because you have a hormonal system in place to stop absorbing iron when you have too much and to shift iron towards ferritin. Ferritin Uh, You know, we might use ferritin being too elevated as a metric of iron overload, but the ferritin molecule itself is a way of protecting the iron from doing damage because it's basically a storage. It's like a quarantine for iron, for the the excess iron. And uh, the thing is, though, that there are genetic polymorphisms that are um, not the majority of the population by any stretch, but common enough that, you know, maybe... Um, maybe a few percent of people and, you know, maybe up to eight or 10% of people to, to at least a moderate degree have some impairment in that regulatory system where even if they're consuming normal amounts of iron, their, their tendency will be to iron overload. And for a man, that tendency would be 30 years shifted forward compared to a woman because a woman um, who has this genetics might be protected by menstruation for most of her life until she either hits menopause or, um, or in, in earlier cases, amenorrhea for you know, other reasons, um, or just has a change in her menstrual flow. Like all those things can precipitate that genetics becoming relevant. Um, I think that it's kind of hard to define where the conventional or allopathic model is because uh, even the, you know, like I've noticed that even uh, some of the most common laboratories have been narrowing their ranges for ferritin in the last decade or so. Um, but the, the standard way of dealing with this is to define hemochromatosis as a condition of extreme iron overload where you basically have you basically have mineral ores deposited in your organs. Like you, you literally have like 
metal being deposited in your organs. And I've seen people who um, had no idea that they had this until they had to get uh, like an artificial pacemaker or they had to get, you know, like surgery of some sort to fix something that really went wrong. And I think the way that it's managed is very negligent there. And basically what they, what they used to do was say that your ferritin had to, like a ferritin of a thousand gives you a high probability that the person has hemochromatosis. Well, fine, but you can catch that person 30 or 40 years earlier by looking for the, for the signs of iron overload. And so the way that I think about this is to think about the actual physiological breakdown that happens. And that physiological breakdown is as follows. You have transferrin, which is your short-term iron storage, and you have ferritin, which is your long-term iron storage. Transferrin in your blood usually has 30 to 40% of its iron binding sites bound to iron. And that's used not only as a short-term storage to pass it on to different places, it's also used as a sensor of the degree to which your iron is low or high. And so what happens is that when iron goes over 40% or so in transferrin, then the system of feedback really starts kicking into gear and you get a hormonal response that decreases intestinal iron absorption and starts shuttling that extra iron into ferritin. The most of the cases of the breakdown of that system are a breakdown in the ability to communicate that transferrin saturation is high. So what happens is the transferrin saturation goes above 40%, maybe it goes to 50%, 55%, and you don't get a ferritin response. You don't get, a, you don't get intestinal iron absorption dropping. You just keep taking in more iron. And so if you were to look at that person 30 or 40 years before they'd be diagnosed with hemochromatosis, what you would see is that their transferrin saturation is way higher than what you'd expect and that their ferritin is nowhere near as high as you'd expect. And this is kind of a mind blow for a lot of people because high ferritin is usually like the synchronon of diagnosing this problem. But low ferritin is the beginning of the, of the, of the problem. Not, not that it's low, but that it's, but that it's not rising when it should be right. So the very earliest thing that you see is, you know, if I, if I see someone with a transferrin saturation of 45%, I'm not going to conclude anything from that, but I'm going to say, oh, this is interesting. You really want to keep an eye on this because this looks like a very, very, very first early case of iron overload. Now, if you measure that again a month later and it's 30%, then you might say like, oh, it was a fluke. Like it's just, that's in that person, it just goes up and down like that. Um, but if you measure it again, and then it's 47%, then it's 49%, you really are on the path to seeing a, a case of iron overload. And um, now ferritin is like that, that ferritin, like in that person, that ferritin could be 40. You know, there's so many things that, that impact that. It's not necessarily high. Eventually it's going to get high. But the reason is that ferritin doesn't, is not, it doesn't just respond to iron. It also responds to inflammation and it responds to oxidative stress. The reason that it responds to inflammation is that inflammation is a sign that you have an infection and there are a lot of infectious microbes that will feed off the iron. So you protect the iron and ferritin so they don't have access to it. The reason that's regulated by oxidative stress, which is um, wear and tear and damage to your tissues from free radicals and other oxidants is that Iron makes all those oxidants tremendously worse. You got hydrogen peroxide around there, iron will interact with it and just blow the damage out of proportion. And so ferritin locks up iron so that it can't do that. So in a mid-stage hemochromatosis person, the ferritin eventually is high, not because the iron was high, but because the iron being high started causing oxidative stress and oxidative damage that led to ferritin going up. Like ferritin, high ferritin hemochromatosis is the fireman who's late to the fire. The house was already burning down and then the fireman showed up. So um, 
So I, I don't think cutoffs of ferritin are actually really the major thing when you're looking at that. And in fact, uh, I personally, and this is part hunch, like there's some data for it, but not, you know, not a lot. The way that I think about it is that if I was, if I was looking at someone who had a history of anemia, I'd probably want to see their ferritin get up to 100 or 150 to be sure that they're really repleting everything and not just dragging by. Whereas for someone who had a history of iron overload, I'd probably want to see them get their iron below 60, even down to 20, if as long as they, they felt good there and there was, there was no anemia that was kicking in based on red blood cell and, and, and hemoglobin counts. Um, so I would look at it very differently there because you, it, you, um, it's, it's sort of like uh, you want, with the, iron, with the overload person, you want to be sure that you aren't just adding problem, adding uh, fuel to the fire. You, you actually want to make sure that you're clearing the iron out. And I think it's probably the case, my, this is my informed guess, that the lower the iron status is in, in circulation, the more there's going to be a pull from the tissues to try to feed the general circulation. And so you don't want to maintain it at normal levels. You want to actually maintain it at the bottom of normal to help siphon the iron out. Whereas you basically want to do the opposite in someone whose problem is that they were anemic, you know, because even if they, even if they're no longer anemic, you don't know that they have all the iron where it needs to be in terms of inside their cells in the mitochondria where iron is, playing an important role in antioxidant defense. We're playing an important role in energy metabolism. Um, so you, you want to be sure that all those bases that you can't see are covered. Yeah, fascinating, Chris. Thanks for sharing that. I, I'll have to watch that a couple of times to, to really get the nuances of it. But, you know, it, it, to me, it's kind of like a, a matrix movie in, in, you know, biochemistry where you have the balance of power where you know, microbes and, and versus the good guys and the bad guys and, and iron is sort of that, that, that really important nutrient that it's battled over. And I, I really liked your assessment in terms of really getting the history, um, understanding the stages, um, understanding what plays into the into um, where the pre-exist not pre-existing but what the the prehistory is and and going forward that way is that in your cheat sheet analysis as well the whole iron yeah. story that is yeah yeah I also have I also have a podcast on iron that uh, that I did uh, the year before last year that is uh, a much more deep dive it's a couple hours long it's called how to why, why you need to manage your iron status and how to do it. So for people who want to super, super geek out on um, the two and a half version, two and a half hour version of what I just said, then uh, Google my name with uh, how, why you need to manage your iron status and how to do it and that'll pop up. Yeah, so let us know exactly too, because I know you have your, your channels and your, your websites. Well, let us just let the audience know right now, and then also we'll put it in the show notes in terms of how would they get access to all of your, your vast knowledge and your information. Yeah, um, you can find me at chrismasterjohnphd.com, and uh, I'm on a lot of the social media channels. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and uh, don't do a lot of Snapchat, but I'm on there a little bit. And I'm at Chris Masterjohn on all those channels. Uh, but chrismasterjohnphd.com is really the home for all my content. So whatever I'm doing anywhere on the internet should be linked to there. Uh, we mentioned the cheat sheet. So chrismasterjohnphd.com slash cheat sheet is where people can get that. And uh, yeah, see you, uh, see you guys on the, on the internets. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. So last question. So I wanted to I wanted to throw this in there somewhere during the call, but I, I, I saved it to the end. So when your mother was sick and you saw her path and, and saw the holistic approach and it was stressing you out, um, where I've talked to a lot of people where we talk about the perception. So it's not so much the the HPA axis, Chris, it's the AHP axis with the amygdala, amygdala, hypothalamus, pituitary, where it's that perception that can really drive that um, almost uh, neuroplasticity uh, repetitive loop. So I guess the question is, in your own health, 
when that was being experienced and then you went down the path of veganism and then realizing it wasn't for you and then come out with the master cheat sheet with how to play your own sort of story, how much does the perception change your, your scientific approach um, in terms of um, accounting for that? And I guess this is a tough question in terms of you've made a, an amazing uh, research in terms of the nutrients and you know, having a two hour podcast on one nutrient and then giving people the background cheat sheet information to understand if this, if you feel that way, then this is a way that you could possibly go down and look into this and that. But how much is there intrinsic or non-tangible scientific stuff that plays into that in terms of perception? I don't know if that's a clear question or not. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's a clear cut question or not either. So I, um, I think, I mean, I think what you said is definitely true that how we respond to problems in our life is an incredibly powerful influence on um, the experience that we have. That's true for sure. I think, you know, in the work that I do, my, my goal, I think, is actually to work on the side of removing the perception to get the objective clues. And that's not to say that there isn't a completely uh, whole other side to managing the problem that is based on managing the perception. Um, but that's and you know that might be something that I eventually poke my head into more, but um, that's not really the that's not really the focus of my work, right? So, um, and I, I think I think for you because you're a practitioner where your main thing is helping people deal with these things, it's really important to in integrate those two sides. Um, for me, I'm you know my big thing that I'm really, really good at is not walking people through problems. It's, uh, it is understanding abstract ideas and figuring out how systems work, right? So the way that I look at that is, I wanna help you have a system for managing half of the equation, which is figure out what is going on in the biochemical and physiological half of that equation and how do you get the most objective data you can? And there's no such thing as clean data. The point is, how can you clean the data, right? And how can you collect that data in a way that is as clean as possible in order to make a conclusion from, from it? Of course, I am a human being myself and I have my own problems. And you know, in my own life, yeah, I mean, I, I realized that. Well, I had chronic insomnia for most of my life. And I now, you know, it took me over 10 years of really understanding the impact of diet and lifestyle and sleep to figure out the 16 different things that I had wrong that I needed to fix. But one of my first, uh, one of my first light bulb moments was when I realized that, um, oh, I was reading this book, this spiritual book, and this person was saying that, um, he was just talking about how you should thank God for all your problems. So I realized that if I got two hours of sleep one night and that if my response to that was to thank God that I only got two hours of sleep that night, that my, my functionality improved by, you know, it basically doubled. Um, and I realized that maybe 20 or 30% of the effect of only getting two hours of sleep was actually due to only getting two hours of sleep and 70 or 80% of the effect was due to the belief that because I only got two hours of sleep, I was, I was not going to perform to the anger that I only got two hours of sleep, to the disappointment that I only got two hours of sleep to the self hatred for only being able to get two hours of sleep. <laughs> And um, yeah, so I mean, so I, I mean, I, I have a deep experience of that stuff. It's just that, um, it's just that I don't have a, a lot of expertise in it. And so right now at this stage of my life, I'm, I'm working on other parts of that equation.
Yeah, I mean, I think you answered the question perfectly, Chris, and I think that um, your answer was perfect, but, but the only thing I would add is that they're not separable. And, um, and both of them have to be there. Um, you can, because we, we see it all the times, the analytical patients that are really nose deep into the notes, into the research, sometimes you just got to kind of knock them on the head and like, you know, what's missing that isn't in the, you know, in the objective stuff are, is the awareness of the other stuff. And I think you, don't, you yeah. just really can't separate that. And, but you're aware of it and um, it's awesome what you're doing. I, I appreciate every, all, everything you shared yeah, with you me. Can't, is- you can't separate it from the patient, but you also can't integrate it into a mathematical model of their serum vitamin A. Yeah, right. You know? yeah, you, so yeah, it's like can't. when I say separate, I, only, I mean that in a limited context. Right. Um, but you, yeah, you kind of have to figure out a way to work on one thing and work on the other thing and yet work on all of it. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's a great uh, conversation. And I, I think it's a good, um, a good podcast for, for not just patients, but for doctors too. So Chris, I want to thank you. So once again, they, we got the um, ability to, to reach you at Chris master, John PhD. Is that the, the area that they get? PhD.com. That's right. .com. Right. Okay. Awesome. And then as far as the cheat sheet, the revisited one, when's the release for that? When is that already out? Or is there- um, well, I mean, the, the way that I have it set up is that um, the, the type of revisions that I'm making to it are minor revisions, which, which means that the people who bought it get free updates. So um, rather than coming out with like a brand new product at a certain point, I mean, it's a, it's a digital product, right? So it's, right. um, it's not cost prohibitive to be able to give the next release to everyone who bought it. Um, so I'm probably going to make like 20 updates to it this year where, uh, sometime this week I'll put out the update based on the last week of research and then I'll update the next nutrient in a week from now and things like that. That's awesome. And it sounds like you love what you do, right? I mean, it's, it's a passion, right? Well, good. I, I appreciate the time that you gave me today. And um, I wish you the best in your research and your study and, uh, and good things to come for your future, Chris. Thanks so much. Thanks, Joel, for having me on. It was great. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested to see if you're a good fit to work with our Adrenal Awakening program, here's what to do next. Head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply and book an appointment to speak to our team. Here's how it works. We'll get on the phone for about 45 minutes and get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, where exactly do you want to be with your health and where are you now? Number two, what are the genetic components that haven't been discovered that are impacting your health? And number three, What are the environmental triggers that may be overlapping with these genetic components keeping you from getting optimal health? Remember, getting your energy back just won't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make that happen. We've helped clients all over the world transform their lives, quadruple their energy, and fix their metabolism, and make the world a better place. To see if you can do the same thing, head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply. I'm Dr. Richard Joel Rosen and we'll talk to you soon.